morning. It'd be great to keep your Bible open. Uh, Today we're talking about sex. What could possibly go wrong? Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I pray as we come to your word today and talk about sex that you might help us to see what is good and right and honourable. And I pray that you give us the will to be faithful to you. Amen. Uh, Sex has this incredible power to either uh, unite or divide. Uh, So at its best, uh, it brings two people together in a way that creates a unique trust and intimacy. Uh, But at its worst, uh, it has the capacity to leave someone completely broken. And part of what makes sex so powerful is that it engages our whole personhood. Uh, So it it is a physical desire, but equally, it's also a powerful emotional desire. Uh, We all want love and to be loved. Uh, And even if it's not about love, uh, we all want to know that at very least, we are desirable to someone else. Uh, For some people, uh, sex becomes the ultimate expression of freedom and their right to self-determination. Uh, They can have sex with who they want, when they want, and they can enjoy the the euphoria of the moment and then walk away completely emotionally detached. It's an expression of control. Uh, So the big challenge for us today as as a group of Christians is how do we embrace uh, God-honouring sex and flee bad sex? Uh, So for those who are just joining us, uh, we are working our way through uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. So it's a young church uh, that's just been, you know, in existence for a couple of months and perhaps a bit longer. And the passage begins by Paul encouraging them. You know, they are doing good. Uh, They're standing up for the faith. And so he wants to say, keep on going. Uh, So verse 1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know, we all need that sort of encouragement, don't we? You know, not just sometimes, but but often. Uh, Because doing good is hard and doing bad is easy. You know, it's a bit like eating chocolate. You know, I, I never have to psych myself up to eat chocolate. Okay, but if if it comes to, say, going for a cycle or a swim, well, then that takes a little more effort. Yeah, one just comes completely naturally. One's easy, but the the other, uh, well, that takes motivation and effort and self-control. And it's the same with being a Christian. Uh, We constantly need our perspective challenged. We need our motivations challenged. Uh, And sometimes we need our resolve renewed. Uh, And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's not telling them something brand new. He's reminding them of something he's already said. And in particular, uh, he's talking about how do we honour God sexually. Uh, So verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, who do not know God. So sanctification as a word simply means uh, to be in the process of being made holy. 
Uh, And holy means to be set apart for God and to be set apart from the broken sinfulness of our world. Uh, It means to be restored, to be uh, recreated in the image of God. So holiness is both moral, uh, but it's also relational. And holiness is not the result of our good work. Uh, Holiness is what God has done in us. So Jesus, the eternal, uh, perfect son of God, uh, died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And when we turn to Christ uh, and repent of our sin, we become united with Christ and we start to become united with his character and with his spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us to be more like Christ. Uh, So sometimes the Bible talks about sanctification as past and complete. If you are a Christian, uh, you are saved, you are united with Christ, done and dusted. Uh, And other times it talks about sanctification as a work in progress, uh, as we grow in our love and loyalty and obedience to Christ. And part of sanctification is how we approach sex. I think people often say about Christians, you know, uh, Christians are sort of living like they're in the 1950s. Uh, and it's meant as an insult, uh, but, but really they haven't gone back half far enough uh, because as, as Christians, uh, we don't just sort of go back to the 50s, we go all the way back to Genesis, uh, to how God created things to be. So this is how Genesis describes how we should be sexually and relationally. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And all the way through scripture, from beginning to end, we see this consistent theme uh, that sex is for marriage and that sex is good. Uh, And that Proverbs passage we read today, you know, sex is passionate, isn't it? May May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's not really the sort of stuff you expect in a respectable sort of Bible, is it? You know, but but God created sex. God, you know, wants us to love each other and love sex. Uh, I feel the popular portrayal of sex at the moment is that sex in marriage is misogynistic and stifling and sex outside of marriage is liberating and satisfying. I think that's sort of the cultural picture that we get. And sadly, that, that might be what is becoming true, but it isn't as it should be. And so as Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica, He wants them to have a very different view of sex compared to the pagan culture around them. Uh, For them, if you grow up in pagan pagan culture, not Christian, uh, then it wouldn't have been unusual for someone to have a live-in sex slave. Uh, It wouldn't have been unusual to go and visit the local temple prostitutes. Uh, So you can imagine if you've grown up in this culture your entire life, you've never known anything different, And then Paul comes along and says, actually, there is a right and a wrong way to behave when it comes to sex. And I think in some respects, it's not that hard to imagine anymore because our own culture is shifting very quickly. 
You know, on a society level, you know, we, we struggle to understand how anyone would deny their feelings, those, those natural, passionate lusts. Why, why would you limit those things? Why would you limit sex to just sort of one person in marriage? Why would you so, show such unnecessary self-control? You know, why would you deny yourself all that fun and pleasure, uh, particularly if you're young and perhaps single? Uh, in fact, some would even go further and say, if you show self-control, actually, that might be harmful to you, certainly emotionally and psychologically, if not physically. Uh, but the Christian approach is different. Uh, the Christian ethic says there is a right and wrong expression for sex, and actually self-control is a good thing. Uh, so just to be clear and, and perfectly awkward, sexual immorality is not just about intercourse outside of marriage. Uh, it also includes our thoughts and all those other uh, expressions that we can potentially engage with to simulate sex. And it includes how we behave outside of marriage, but also how we behave inside of marriage. So the Bible teaches that the right expression for sex is mutually gratifying, consensual, in marriage, between a man and a woman. But that definition doesn't always fit to what we would want, even as Christians. And so I think the temptation sometimes is to try to go back to the Bible and reread it and reinterpret it into something that we find just a little more palatable and perhaps fit with our preferred you know, lifestyle. So, for example, uh, there is no verse in the Bible that says you cannot look at pictures of people having sex. Uh, but there is certainly a principle. Uh, so Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within, with her in his heart. Or perhaps we try to justify our behaviour with a Bill Clinton defence. Uh, his defence was, I never had sexual relations with that woman. Now, it's probably true that he never had sexual intercourse with that woman, but it was certainly sexual, wasn't it? Or perhaps we use the Bible to justify the wrong sort of marriage. Uh, so we shouldn't be too surprised uh, that our culture has embraced same-sex marriage as right and good. And they don't, they don't uh, have any sense of commitment to God or, he, or the Bible or anything like that. And so we, we shouldn't be too surprised. Uh, but now we have Christians who are saying that same-sex marriage is right for Christians. And they justify it by saying there is no verse in the Bible where Jesus says explicitly that homosexual relations are wrong. Now, Jesus does explicitly say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And certainly when we read the whole of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, there is a consistent theme that same-sex marriage is not the way and same-sex relationships are not the way that God has called us to relate with one another. So the desire is real. Uh, no one's denying that. But not every desire... Uh, heterosexual or homosexual, is right. 
And so we need to love and support uh, the Christian who's struggling with same-sex attraction in the same way that we love and support uh, the Christian who is single. Uh, or we love and support the person who is married, but in a sexually unsatisfying marriage. But that doesn't make everything right. Or perhaps we use the Bible uh, to be controlling when it comes to sex. And so we take a good principle and we twist it to make it a selfish principle. Uh, So, for example, 1 Corinthians 7 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, if we use a verse like that to demand sex, uh, then we really have got it all backwards. Uh, that, the, the Christian ethic is how do we sacrificially love the other person? So we cannot demand sex from someone else. Uh, but equally, we do have to ask the question, how do we choose to be generous sexually to our spouse. Now, as Christians, uh, there are so many ways that we get, get it wrong uh, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sex. Uh, and we fail to live up to uh, who God has called us to be. Uh, but let's not add to our sin by justifying wrong behaviour as right. Uh, and when we do get it wrong, and when we are genuinely cut to the heart, repentant, uh, then we can be confident that God is gracious and that God forgives. You know, guilt has a very important role. Uh, Guilt helps us to recognise that what we have done is wrong. But equally, when we repent, forgiveness frees us from guilt and is no longer held against us. And it should point us to just how much we are loved by God. You know, sometimes it's easy to think that we are lovable when we are nice. God should love us when we do good things. But when we get it wrong, actually we see that God loves us not because we do good things, but actually in spite of the fact that we often do bad things and that we are often disobedient. So if love and desire are a powerful part of how we express our identity and desirability and intimacy, uh, then how do we pursue God-honouring sex? I think often uh, Christians try to motivate self-control by appealing to consequences. Uh, So, you know, if you have sex outside marriage, you'll get a disease, um, someone's going to end up pregnant, uh, you know, you're going to be laden up with all this emotional baggage and once you do get married, sex will never be quite as good as it could have been. Uh, now, some of that might, might actually be true, uh, but if we think that potential consequences are going to motivate us to godly behaviour, uh, then we're going to be disappointed. And certainly in the moment, uh, we never think any of those consequences are relevant to us. Uh, So if we want to talk about self-control as Christians, uh, then we need to start talking about our identity first. And how do we align our identity with Christ first? And we see that motivation in this passage. You know, as Paul is talking to these Christians, he wants them to be sanctified, verse 3. He wants them to be holy and honourable, verse 4. And now in verse 9 he says, "...the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins." As we told you and warned you before, 
For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Uh, So Paul wants us to recognize that sexual immorality is actually serious. Uh, That it is a sin and God punishes sin. But just as significantly, Paul wants these Thessalonian Christians to recognize that their identity and their value and their significance is found in Christ and living for Christ. Uh, Not in our marital status, not in our sexual desirability. And when we get that perspective right, when our our identity is in Christ, when we're motivated by a desire to honour Christ, then it gives us a compelling reason uh, to say yes to good things and and no to bad things. Uh, And it allows us to be content in our circumstances. So for those who are single, uh, some some are single by choice, Uh, Some would love uh, things to be different. But as we have our identity in Christ, it frees us from thinking that our value and significance is just about our marital status. It doesn't remove that desire uh, necessarily to, to want to be in a relationship, but it does shift our perspective. Uh, And if you are single, uh, then Paul's very clear command his letter to the Corinthian church, which is another church just down the road, his command to them is, if you're looking for someone, look for a Christian. Uh, In the letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul is speaking specifically to those who have been widowed. Uh, But if the principle is true for those who are widowed, then it's equally true for the rest of us, isn't it? Uh, That we want to have marry someone who is aligned uh, with our identity, and our identity is in Christ. And thankfully, we don't have to achieve any of this simply by our own power. You know, for the marrieds, simply being married doesn't dissolve the issue of sexual immorality uh, or sexual contentment. I think when we're young, we presume that that does solve everything and then you discover that's not quite as true as perhaps it was promised. Uh, But if our identity is in Christ, then that shapes how we approach loving that other person. It, approaches, it changes how we approach loving them generously. It changes our contentment. It changes how we perceive things when things get really difficult. And we all know in marriage, things get really difficult. And it changes our perspective on when we are tempted by the world around us. And so Paul's prayer throughout this letter is that God will strengthen their hearts. And he points them to the Holy Spirit who's working in them. It isn't just about us having the will to do the right thing. Temptation is not some irresistible force. It is powerful, uh, but we can say no, and we do have God's Holy Spirit to help us to say no. Or to help us to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. Uh, But I think it also means putting things in place uh, to avoid temptation. So you're less likely to fall off a cliff uh, if you're not standing on the edge of a cliff. Uh, But often temptation is less like a cliff and perhaps more like a waterfall. Uh, So, you know, if you're paddling sort of upstream a bit where it's nice and calm and you jump in and it's happy days. uh, But of course, as as you continue on, you float down the stream a bit and, you know, slowly but surely that current gets a little bit, you know, 
uh, more forceful until you finally get a point uh, where it becomes an irresistible force, doesn't it? And over you go. Uh, I think that's more what temptation's like in real life, isn't it? It, it often, sometimes it's just you know, s- smack in front of us, uh, but often it creeps up on us. Uh, so we need to recognise temptation uh, and put things in place. And I think there's a lot of things you could say about how do we avoid temptation, uh, but here's four that I think are helpful. Uh, one, this seems really obvious, but don't start. Uh, once we've given into a particular temptation, it becomes that much harder next time, doesn't it? You know, think about things in your life. You know, once you, you open that, I'll go back to that chocolate. You open that pack of Tim Tams. Yep, I'm just going to have one, but now it's open. Don't want them to go stale. You know, uh, that's what temptation does. It just gains power. Uh, so when we start, it's hard to stop. It's like a Pandora's box. Uh, number two, if we do start, uh, if we do give in to temptation, then uh, I think the more we starve temptation, uh, the less power it has over us. Uh, so simply because we give in doesn't mean we give up. And I think the more we move ourselves away from things which tempt us, uh, the less power they have over us. Uh, certainly if you ask anyone who struggles with addiction, the more they get away from that addictive space, the easier it becomes. And it's the same with temptation. Number three, uh, we need to be careful how we bond with people uh, because how we bond uh, can very quickly draw us into more powerful feelings. Uh, If we ever have to justify a relationship with the words, we are just friends, then I suspect something's gone wrong. Uh, And I suspect we need to look at that relationship. Uh, So if you are married and you're getting too close to someone who is not your spouse, uh, we need to recognise that for what it is. Uh, Number four, uh, particularly awkward, but I think also particularly relevant. Uh, We need to work out ways not to be tempted by pornography on devices. Uh, Once upon a time, it was in a shop, it was in a distance, you had to go to some effort. Uh, these days, it is everywhere. Uh, and so we need to recognise it. I think it's a particularly big issue for blokes, uh, but it's not just blokes who are tempted by pornography. Uh, and working out a plan to avoid temptation uh, when we are lonely and sexually frustrated uh, is never going to happen. Uh, and so we do have to think about it preemptively. And we do have to think, okay, what things do we put in place uh, that protect ourselves before it becomes an issue? Uh, And in the world of devices, uh, there are infinite number of accountability programs and different things you can do. Uh, If you're single, work out something with another single person. If you're married, work out something with your spouse or or a mate or someone who you can trust. But how do we put things in place to help us avoid it when we feel weak? And all of this, as we talk about uh, sexual temptation... Uh, is not an optional extra. Uh, Paul finishes this passage where he starts by reminding them that his words are God's word. Verse 10, Therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You know, we can't accept the mercy of God and then reject obedience to God. And why would we want to? 
You know, if God created us and God knows what is best for us, then as we are in Christ, as we have the Holy Spirit working in us, we should recognise that all of that is actually for our good. You know, sex is one of those uh, topics and areas that's particularly polarising in our society uh, because it is so deeply personal and so connected to our identity. Uh, And so uh, as we live uh, as Christians in a culture that is becoming very different to us, uh, we do need to make a choice about who we're going to follow. Do we uh, honour God and follow his way and trust his word? uh, Or do we trust the culture around us? Uh, And thankfully, that's not a decision that we make alone. Uh, the, help, the Spirit helps us to see that Paul's words are God's word. And he convicts us and guides us and strengthens us so that we can embrace what is good and flee what is bad. Uh, it is hard, uh, but it's not impossible, and we do have God with us. So let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that you've created us uh, sexual beings uh, for lots of reasons. We thank you uh, for marriage uh, and for the gift of marriage. Lord, we pray in whatever our circumstances are uh, that we might seek to honour you sexually in them. And so, Lord, we pray by your spirit uh, that you might give us such a deep uh, love for you and conviction of your word uh, that we will desire to be obedient. Uh, to help us to see the good and to flee the bad. Amen.